investing in property makes sense. Investing in the right property takes knowledge. Welcome to the Rewarding Property Decisions podcast. I'm Jared McCabe, Director of Wakeland Property Advisory. Join me for expert insights into the fundamentals, trends and opportunities to help you create long-term wealth through smart property decisions. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 43 of the Rewarding Property Decisions podcast. So I've been asking over the previous probably three or four podcasts for the quest for questions to um, address in a Q&O um, podcast, so question and opinion, and today the day's come. So th- I just wanted to start by saying thank you very much for the uh, responses. We've had a huge number of questions come through, and obviously I'm not going to be able to answer them all, but certainly do my best to cover a few within the sort of 10, 15-minute window that we like to keep the podcasts down to. But with the response we've had, most likely um, we'll do another Q&O um, podcast sometime in the new year. Um, So let's get straight into it. The first question comes from Stuart and he asks, please explain the difference between strata, stratum and company share titles in regards to an apartment and how these impact on value and growth performance. Now, I guess the first thing to talk about here is to understand the three different um, types of title there. And the company share was the first followed by stratum and then into strata. And it it was... um, brought about uh, early days when Art Deco Apartments um, came into to being and it was a different form of ownership because you didn't have a physical land component. So there was a it was trying to determine what was going to be the best way to illustrate ownership of these properties. So just to give a definition of each, a company share title is a scheme of land ownership through which the company owns the title to the apartment. So shareholders who have purchased shares in the company are entitled to exclusive con- occupation of a flat in a building on that land. So in this regard, shareholders in the company title buildings do not technically own the property. Now, a stratum title. So under stratum title, the property is subdivided into lots. Each unit owner is the registered proprietor of their lot and also holds shares in a service company, which is established under the Corporations Act, and the service company owns and manages the common property. And then finally, we've got a strata title, which is um, what's used in new properties developed today, which is uh, an individual ownership of a unit or apartment within a multi-unit complex, and all apartment owners are joint owners of the common property, and common areas are shared of um, by all unit owners. So um, the main reason that there's different um, values applied and different growth rates for each of these um, is actually dependent a lot on, on the banks and, and w- what they favour. And due to the strength of ownership, banks do typically favour strata, then followed by stratum, and then finally company share. And so therefore, what this does is it, the banks limit what they're prepared and the, the loan-to-value ratio of what they'll lend to prospective buyers or owners is reduced or is lower for company share, then stratum, then strata. And so therefore, it's it restricts the number of buyers that are actually able to purchase that type of property. And if you limit the number of buyers that are active in that space, it means that there's obviously limited demand, limited competition, and therefore they don't drive as well from a growth point of view. So in basic terms, that's why, Stuart, um, they uh, they have different levels of performance and it's the differing um, definitions and how the banks um, see them and what they're prepared to lend. And they do actually differ what they're prepared to lend against them, depending upon how many um, apartments they've got under more mortgage at, a different, at any different time. Next question comes from Hayden and he asks, uh, a common advice suggests that you should buy a property with good land to improvements ratio as land appreciates while buildings depreciate. So how do you value period style buildings as if a, st- a standard accounting depreciation is using 
is used, the building would be worth nothing. However, in many instances, they still add value. And there's, it's a great question with a number of really good points in it um, because the land to improvements ratio really is important when looking at values because, and you're exactly right, Hayden, the land is where we get the appreciation, whereas um, particularly modern buildings or buildings that have been um, renovated, they, they are going to depreciate. So, um, we ne- you need to then look though at the build once there are bit buildings can be a bit like period style buildings can be a bit like antiques in that once they get to a certain point and they've depreciated to a certain level they actually do start to appreciate in value as well. So first off, I'd say we need to just look at how you value property as a whole. Um, and there's as I've mentioned in the past, there's typically three ways. One is the direct comparison, so comparing directly with other other properties that have sold. The other is a summation, so looking at the land plus the buildings to get to a value. And then the final is the capitalization, so using a yield. Now, typically with period-style homes, a direct comparison is the best way to value property um, because it gives you uh, a far more accurate reading. So the best way, if you need to determine what the improvements portion of that total value is, the best way to do that is to determine the end value, so the total value of the property, then look at what is the land value component, because you can then look at um, land sales, so whether that's vacant land or perhaps properties where the improvements are adding no value or very limited value at all. Um, And then obviously you can deduct that land value from that end um, value, and that will give you a good indication of what the improvements add in terms of value. So it's not like, um, so uh, I, I wouldn't do it as you suggested, um, particularly period homes under the with the accounting depreciation method, because I just don't think that gives an accurate reflection. That's more suited to more modern properties. You can you can use that depreciation method to get a bit of an indication, um, but not not so much with period style homes. Next question comes from Jay, who asks, should I be looking for suburbs going through gentrification when purchasing an apartment? Um, now, again, another really good question. Suburbs going through gentrification can be a really good option for buying property, um, particularly for certain types of property. Um, it enables you can, to get in on the ground floor, tax, potentially when there's really good value to be had, and you can see some great benefits. Um, the difficulty with buying good quality older style properties um, uh, in gentrifying areas is that there wasn't a huge number of them being built. So a lot of the um, older period style properties or established properties in more of those boutique blocks that we've looked at um, is that they, they were built in the, um, in, during those periods because land values in those areas were extremely were still very strong and well uh, and highly sought after. And so it was an opportunity to build more affordable accommodation, whereas in some of the areas that are, that are gentrifying, um, houses have been far more affordable in those areas, so there hasn't been the need to construct as many apartments over the years. People have been able to afford to buy houses. So there, there isn't that older established property. So like that... Um, boutique block, 1930s through to 1970s, two to three stories that we talk about. There's not as many of good, that good type, good quality, older style property that was built with an owner occupier in mind during those timeframes. Um, so if you are looking more to, to get into a gentrifying suburb, it's probably a different type of property rather than an apartment. Um, so houses quite often in gentrifying areas are a good option. Or if you are looking at, you mentioned Footscray, Collingwood's probably less of a gentrifying suburb from a residential point of view these days. It's quite well established. But in some of those areas, the warehouse type apartments, which give a bit of a point of difference, um, can be a really good option in that regard. So that's probably more something in a, in a gentrifying area to consider. Next question comes from Dimitri, who um, asks, could you please share your opinion on pros and cons 
of buying a large house versus an, a, an apartment building, which is fully owned. So, so buying uh, a block with four to six apartments within it um, as an investment. So buying one of the two as an investment. So a, a house versus buying a block of flats. Um, so when you're looking at an investment, as we've discussed many times, there's three elements that we want to, to really achieve good, solid capital growth. One of them is a strong underlying land value. The other is the scarcity value of the property itself. And the third is the mul- having multifaceted demand. So the first two elements can certainly be achieved with both of these types of properties, the block of flats or the, um, the large family home. But the multifaceted demand is limited, particularly with the house, um, because it's most likely only going to be suited to a large to a family, or potentially, depending upon the quality of the improvements, maybe to a developer down the track. Whereas a block of four to six apartments has probably got a little bit more flexibility to it, in that you could potentially sell it off to four to six individual owners, uh, and they could be owner occupiers, so first home buyers, downsizers. Um, someone looking for a town base or an investor. Um, you could sell the whole block to someone who might be looking to redevelop it um, and put uh, new apartments or townhouses on there or potentially demolish it and put a single dwelling on there as well. Um, and in, in some instances with some of the Art Deco buildings, people have um, looked to convert the whole building into one single dwelling. So there's a bit more flexibility in that in that regard. And from a, a rental point of view, there's greater flexibility as well. So um, as a single dwelling, you might find that um, if you buy the, the, the family home, there's only really one type of tenant. Um, and if there's a vacancy period, it, it can mean that you don't have any rental income being generated for a period of time. Whereas with a block of apartments, one property becomes vacant, well, you've still got the income being generated from the remaining apartments. It also gives you flexibility to be able to upgrade those apartments um, when one becomes vacant, but still generate income from the others as well. So as a purely investment, I would look um, if the values were of, of similar. So if you're looking to spend $3 million, for instance, in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, um, I would probably look more to buy a block of flats as opposed to a single dwelling. Uh, Next question comes from Diana, and she asks, um, do you pay a premium price when buying off the plan or a brand new apartment? So is it better to buy an apartment that is not new? Um, And again, this is not an uncommon question that we quite often get from um, investors and owner-occupiers coming in and sitting down with us. The thing to remember with buying off the plan is what was the what's the objective of these properties having been constructed? Um, the properties are being sold most likely by a developer, and their objective is to make as much of a profit as possible. That's their business. That's what they do, and so they're wanting to make as much money as they can. They're going to need to factor in a premium over what it's cost them because of all the risk that they've taken on board to to construct these properties, um, and they're not so worried about whether or not it's going to be a good property in five to ten years' time. They're more focused on does it present really well now, uh, and is it going to be uh, attractive to the market so that I can and make a profit when I sell them. Um, so, and I guess that is it, it's not dissimilar, and we use this analogy quite a bit to buying a brand new car. Um, as soon as you drive it out of the um, the lot, it, depre- it, it drops in value, uh, and that's not this, not dissimilar with a, a brand new apartment because it's not ever going to be any better than when you take possession of it. Everything's going to be shiny and new. All the the um, services that the building may offer are going to be brand new. And by the time you get um, six months, 12 months down the track, for someone that wants that brand new, there'll probably be other opportunities in the surrounding area. The other element to it is that most of them, uh, most of what you've just purchased is the improvements itself. There's a very limited notional land value. And as we spoke about before around depreciation, um, the bulk of what you've just bought is now starting to drop in value. So 
unless you've got a really strong land component to to cover off on that depreciation, the value of your property is most likely going to be coming backwards. Now, if you've bought that as an owner-occupier because that's where you want it to be and that's what you wanted, then that's absolutely understandable as long as you're going into it with your eyes wide open. But as an investor, if, the, if you're tossing up between the two, the, the main reason that people tend to focus more on the modern is they like the idea of the depreciation benefits. Now, that's only going to get you so far, and it's certainly not going to get you put you in a strong position to create wealth going forward as well. So those older style apartments that, have, that are um, on more boutique blocks, uh, sorry, in more boutique developments on larger parcels of land have got greater scope for growth going forward. Now, apartments in general haven't performed as well as would be expected across the board for the past probably five to 10 years. But um, the ones that are more older style in those boutique blocks have certainly at least held value and in some instances had small increases. But the uh, the, old, the more modern, larger developments have gone backwards. And so it's it's quite clear to see which is the better option to go for if you're looking at an apartment as a, as a purchasing option. Next question comes from Natalie who asks, I'm very nervous about bidding at auction and do you have any tips? I've done a couple of podcasts, Natalie, on this one. Um, on bidding at auction, but also on how to deal with a passing if um, if you come come into that position. So perhaps check some of those podcasts as well. But the one thing that I would say first and foremost is if you do feel uncomfortable and you're not sure about bidding, then get someone else to do it for you. Um, if you've put your heart and soul and you've really found a property that you love, um, you want to make sure that you give yourself the best chance to buy it. Now, that could be a professional helping you do the bidding, but it could be a family member or a friend who's done it before and has the confidence and takes the emotional uh, element out of play and represents you um, in a better manner. So if you feel that's necessary, you should not feel bad about not bidding for yourself um, and getting someone else because it's it's generally a better option to have someone thinking more clearly on your behalf. But if you do decide that you would like to do the bidding on bidding yourself and you are still a bit nervous, there's a few pointers to, to keep in one mind. One of them is, to the first is to position yourself in a really good spot so that you can clearly see the auctioneer and you can clearly hear what he or she is saying but also they can see you and they can hear what you're saying so that there can be no um, misconceptions around your involvement. Um, The other thing to do in terms of positioning yourself is try to put yourself in a spot where you can see as much of the crowd as possible without having to do significant turns and moves to see what's going on with other bidders. Um, if you are nervous, bid early. Uh, there's no no um, rule that says that you've got to wait until the property's on the market. There's all these different tactics and theories. But if you're nervous, the best thing you can probably do is put a bid in early around the bottom end of the quote so that the auctioneer sees you there, knows that you're interested, and will most likely continue to refer back to you until you clearly say, no, look, I'm not interested anymore. So it will put you front of mind with the auctioneer and mean that you're less likely to be to be missed going forward down the track. And call your bids out. Don't just agree with the auctioneer or nod your head. Actually call out the number that you want to bid. Uh, it demonstrates authority and that you are there, And but it also means that you're more likely to um, remember where you're up to and less likely to lose your place in terms of bidding. Um, and then finally, if a property is going to pass in within your budget, make sure that it passes into you. Make sure that you bid because if you don't, you lose the opportunity to negotiate at the vendor's reserve price. So just make sure that you stick your hand up and, and get involved. Um, but yeah, those the other two, uh, the other podcasts that I've done previously will probably give you a, a really good insight there if there's further information that you do need. 
Next question comes from Tom. Um, should I buy two two-bedroom apartments or one house with a budget of 1.2 mil? And this is a common question in different forms and different budgets that we do get asked quite regularly. Um, and it, it is dependent upon the budget on what you should do. But if we're working around 1.2 mil, I would tend to go with the house. Um, it's got greater scarcity value. It's got a stronger land component. And you've probably got better opportunities for multifaceted demand with that type of property. Obviously, the benefit of buying two apartments um, is that there's you can diversify, but when you're spending 600000 um, on each apartment, you're most likely only going to diversify geographically because you'll buy two fairly similar type properties. Um, you, you are able to at least, if there's financial changes to circumstances, you could sell one off and keep the other. Um, but I think uh, with a long-term planning in mind that buying the house would be the better option in this scenario. If you had a budget of, say, $2 million and what should I do, then I would be more inclined to buy a couple of properties. Now, it may not be two apartments in that instance. It may be a house and a villa unit or a house and an art deco, or potentially, depending upon where you are, maybe two houses. But um, with a greater budget, it offers greater flexibility to perhaps look at buying uh, multiple properties rather than one. Um, we're starting to wind up here. I'll, I'll answer one more question um, from Holger, and that was, what does the rental situation look like at the moment? Is it okay to increase rents back to pre-lockdown levels? Uh, which is a, a really good question, and we're having this discussion with a lot of investors at the moment, um, and some of the research that's coming out is certainly suggesting that we're not only back at pre-pandemic levels, but in a lot of circumstances exceeding it. So SQM Research, who puts out some great information, um, some of their data over the, the past covering the past two years suggests that the median rentals, so at, in February 2020, just prior to the pandemic, for Melbourne was 550 a week. Um, at the bottom, it was uh, during the pandemic at May 2021, it uh, dropped to 509. And as of November, we're now back up to 595 a week. So in excess of what we were up to. And the vacancy rates, again, February 2020 was at 2.1%. December 2020 was when it peaked at two and a half, and we're now in October 2022 down at 1.5%. Now, that, that covers the whole of, um, of Melbourne. It's not, just, it's not a specific type of property. Apartments in certain areas from a vacancy perspective I saw in some areas were as much as 15%. So they were a lot higher, but that, that covers all types of property, so houses as well, and, and houses tended to do a bit better during the pandemic. So it's not a one size fits all, but and neither is the the case of should I increase my my property my rental back up to pre pandemic or higher levels because not all properties are are doing that, but it's certainly um, an indication that you should be monitoring your rental figures and you should be starting to increase them so that they're reflective of current market rentals and you can get a good idea of what current asking rents and things are for similar type properties to determine whether or not um, perhaps you are a little bit below market rates at the moment and then start to bump them up. But in order, when you do start to have those conversations with your property manager and, the, and your renter, you need to be mindful that bumping rents up and, and perhaps putting a renter offside or meaning that they can't get to that may actually put you in a, um, in a worse financial position because if you suggest that perhaps you want to increase it by $50 a week and the renter says no, you then need to calculate your numbers that, well, if I have to release the property, there's going to be a reletting fee, there's going to be marketing costs, I might have a vacancy period of a week or two as well where I don't generate any income. So all of a sudden, even though you might get a, a, a weekly rental back up to where you think you should be, 
um, these costs that are associated with it may actually mean that you're better off just bumping it up a little bit with your, with your current renter and then doing it again down the track um, and just gradually working your way up rather than trying to do it in one big hit. So it's important to look at it from multiple angles and not just do one big um, major jump. Um, so hopefully that answers your question, Holger. But yeah, the rental market certainly is um, is certainly getting back into full force. And I've, I've read a couple of articles recently too. One from uh, PropTrack doing some uh, research in that a lot of over uh, looking at the the real estate websites. There's a lot of overseas interest in rental properties. So when they they look at websites where people are looking at them from, and it's looking as though some of the migration numbers might start to pick up a bit as well, which will increase pressure on rental properties as well, which will further increase rental figures. So it is something to be very mindful of that, that rental figures are, um, are likely to continue to increase, which will hopefully help a little bit with interest rate rises we continue to get. But that's about it for today's podcast. Thanks again. I really appreciate all the questions that have come in. And, and when we do um, do another one of these podcasts in the new year, please make sure you send them through. I love getting them. I love um, trying to answer as many as we possibly can. But thanks for joining me for episode 43. Um, Again, always share the podcast as much as you possibly can with friends, family, and other people that you think may have an interest in property. And if you do have um, further questions and and need further information, please visit our website, wakeland.com.au. And otherwise, we wish you all the best with your property decisions.